In his letter on prayer, Rejoice and Be Glad, Pope Francis says, Think of your own history when you pray, and there you will find much mercy. God wants to enter the particulars of our life and heal us. Today, Father Bill Watson, the founder and president of the Sacred Story Institute, is joining us on the show to discuss the evidence-based ways that Ignatian spirituality can heal the deleterious effects of our modern lifestyle. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I am captivated with discovering the truth about my body and how it relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. Welcome back to Physically Spiritual, everyone. Before we get started, a few pieces of housekeeping. I want to draw your your attention to our show notes. We make an effort to have the best show notes in the Catholic podcast world. So everything we quote or reference in the show, you can find in the notes, uh, including links to more information or how to go deeper on the topics. In the notes, I also correct my errors. (laughs) I often misspeak, so uh, watch out for those too. If you are interested in supporting anything we do here at Awaken Catholic, consider joining the Awaken Nation. To become a member of the Awaken Nation, go to awakencatholic.org forward slash donate. Here at Awaken Catholic, we're also partners with the Hollow app. Hollow is the only Catholic meditation app to help you find peace and grow in your spiritual journey. Go to hollow.app forward slash awaken to join. And if you're interested in going deeper in the topics we discuss on the show or want help supporting or applying, want help uh, in support applying any of the ideas we discuss, you can find my blog and coaching practice at becominggift.com. So with that, welcome to the show, Father Bill. How are you this morning? I'm very well here. It's, we, we're between rain breaks in Seattle, but we're, we're thanking God for the rain from all of the fires that we had, so... Oh, praise God. I'm happy happy that you're well in the midst of it. And um, was everyone in your, your team in, in orbit safe through all of the natural uh, disasters that have been there? Yeah, including the Chop Chaz Zone, which is uh, three blocks. I can see it outside of my office window here. <laughs> well, praise God. For the summer, of, the summer of love that we had in Seattle. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, strange events in the world <laughs> that we have today. <laughs> That's right. We're just trusting that God's got a plan, and He's uh, coordinating things at a very high level. Amen. Well, just a little bit for the audience about you. Uh, Father Bill Watson uh, specializes in building enduring Ignatian-based programs that stand the test of time. He's a member of the Oregon Province of the Society of Jesus, or called the Jesuits. He has a doctorate in ministry from the Catholic University of America. He's the author of 40 Weeks, an Ignatian Path to Christ, and Sacred uh, story, an Ignatian examine for the third millennium, along with numerous other books and articles. He is the founder and president of the Sacred Story Institute. Uh, anything else you'd want the audience to know about you, Father Bill? I think that's good. We'll just, uh, we can uh, introduce them to me as I talk in terms of the different things that we're going to share today. Excellent. Well, a little bit about the Sacred Story Institute. The Sacred Story Institute helps individuals and faith communities encounter Christ as the divine physician who heals us in body, mind, and spirit. And they they do this by focusing on uh, research-based programs, time-tested program development, and a holistic approach. So if you're interested in learning more about the Sacred Story Institute, you can go to sacredstory.net. 
They're available on social media platforms at Sacred Story Institute, and they have a podcast on SoundCloud called Sacred Story. Uh, so with that, Father Bill, I wanted to start out by just talking about the name of the Sacred Story Institute. Where did that name come from? Well, the Institute was going to be using the Ignatian spiritual discipline of the examination of conscience uh, as a uh, day-to-day practical tool for people to stay in contact with, with Christ and also as a method for ongoing discernment. And so I needed to come up with uh, some title that would be attractive to people, and I didn't think the Institute on the Ignatian Examination of Conscience had much market throw weight. Uh, and then I discovered that, you know, narrative theology is very powerful. People are interested in their own narrative, their own life. Uh, they like to examine themselves, which is the self-examination of the examination of conscience. So I came up with the concept of story, you know, uh, an individual's own story and how it connects to the cosmic story of Christ's redemptive work in the world. So I settled on the title Sacred Story Institute, and uh, it seems to strike people very positively, and I'm happy that I have felt inspired by the Holy Spirit to choose that name instead of something more um, academic-sounding. Yeah, on, on behalf of the Catholic community, thank you for not picking a long, obscure acronym, nor choosing <laughs> uh, some erudite Catholic terminology that no one understands. Uh, right, exactly. I love that idea of sacred story, because our faith it really is about a story. It's the story of salvation, the story of God's involvement in the world, but then even beyond that, how we're invited into that story. Um, so I think that Ignatian Examine Prayer is a great example of how we enter into that story um, which is really, a, I think, an attunement to the truth of our lives, taking time to notice how God has been involved. Uh, so for the audience, would you just maybe say what the Ignatian Examine is and a kind of maybe a quick explanation of how to do that? Uh, the Ignatian Examination of Conscience is a uh, discipline that Ignatius describes in the spiritual exercises at the beginning of the exercises, but it became a tool, a pastoral tool of the Society of Jesus in its first 200 years. It's a five-movement, 15-minute spiritual discipline that is it's, it's very pragmatic and highly focused, uh, and it invites you to uh, center your life first in thankfulness and gratitude, um, becoming thankful for God's creative work in the world. Uh, Ignatius said late in his life that he thought the greatest sin that somebody could commit was a lack of gratitude. So missing the gift given, the gift of life, the gift of creation, uh, the gift of uh, life with God. So you begin in a moment of prayerful thanksgiving and gratitude for the gift given. Uh, I call that movement creation in sacred story, um, the sacred story methodology. Uh, the second movement is presence. Uh, becoming mindfully aware of the movements of the spirits in your life from the last time you had done this discipline. I do one at noon, and I do one after dinner. Mm-hmm. Ignatius advised twice a day for Jesuits. In fact, it's the only spiritual discipline mandated for Jesuits in the constitutions of the Society of Jesus. Uh, and he thought it was so important. Uh, he did it briefly every hour on the hour until the day that he died as a, as a way to attune himself 
to the working of the spirits and the enemy of human nature in his day-to-day life. Because the spirits, Holy Spirit, and the enemy of human nature, Ignatius's brilliant title for Satan, are active 24-7, inspiring us to choose the light or, on the other end, to choose away from the light and toward the darkness. So the presence movement, the second movement, is becoming aware of the movements of the spirits in your life connected to particular events, thoughts, words, and deeds, and kind of where you are at that moment. Uh, And then uh, Ignatius focused on uh, the, uh, the faults that one had encountered in the living of their life of the gospel, because uh, he thought focusing on the faults would help one grow more effectively spiritually. Mm. So it's like you know, if you are practicing a golf swing or a tennis serve, uh, you're not interested in what you're doing well. You're interested in what you're not doing well so that you can improve it overall. So the, uh, so the, uh, the memory, which is the third one, creation, presence, memory, is you're reflecting back over the course of the day on the faults that you encountered and you're remembering what they were and how they moved you away from faith, hope, and love in your life, your walk with Christ. Uh, So you're remembering the specific event from that last period of hours. Maybe it was 12 hours. Maybe it was seven hours or 10 hours. And then you try to ask for the inspiration to think to the other level of memory St. Augustine says in Book 10 of of his Confessions, and the whole Book 10 is on memory, that everything that we've ever done is resident within our memory. Uh, So you try to think back to the originating event that created this pattern of sin or dysfunction in your life, to try to make the connection between the present uh, and the past, which is, gets very important in terms of the subconscious and neuroscience, which we can talk about to uh, talk about later. Yeah. So there's the memory. So you're thinking about the connection, and you're thinking about this with uh, 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 detachment with Christ, the divine physician. So you're not you're not condemning yourself. You're not shaming yourself. You're curious about how these habits developed, why you're doing them, so that Christ by your side, you can make a change and be transformed by his power. So creation, presence, memory, and then mercy, where you seek forgiveness for anything that you have done wrong. uh, And you also offer forgiveness for people who have done you wrong. Mm. Forgiving other people, even when they have done things to us intentionally that are unjust, we have to surrender those. And we have to forgive those people. Otherwise, we hold on to things and it creates not only spiritual problems for us, but also medical and physiological problems uh, when we're holding on to anger and revenge. Uh, And then the fifth movement that I call eternity, Ignatius was always focused on our eternal life with God and that everything we're doing in our day-to-day lives is moving us towards that eternal banquet. So it's a rededication of my Christian spiritual journey toward the eternal goal And I always uh, end with an Our Father, and I like to say before I do the Our Father, eternal Father, strong to save, guide me along the everlasting way, make my life produce fruit that endures to eternity. And then I pray my Our Father. So it's creation, presence, memory, mercy, and eternity. And the discipline itself, the 15-minute 
uh, examination of conscience is actually a, a compacting, a compression of the entire uh, spiritual exercises, the 30-day spiritual exercises. They're the movements that you would go through over a very gradual period of time in the spiritual exercises. And it, it's a condensed form, strategic, pragmatic form to keep yourself connected to that deeper level of conversion that you experience. Hopefully, if you had an opportunity to do uh, a 30-day uh, spiritual exercise, but even if you have not, the discipline, once you learn how to do it, becomes an incredibly powerful tool. And I have I have priests who uh, do this who tell me that they've done holy hours and all these other spiritual disciplines and novenas, and they have all these other practices, and they tell me how powerful this 15-minute discipline is when they learn how to do it in terms of anchoring them in the specifics of their Christian journey, uh, where things are getting in the way, and how they're in it, and helping them to kind of move forward in terms of holiness and holistic growth. So that's a little brief comment on the, the discipline of the Ignatian examination of conscience. The reason I focused on this for Sacred Story Institute is because it's a discipline that I had let go of in my own life mm. for probably eight years. And there's a point in Jesuit formation, it's called tertianship. It comes from the Latin word tertiary, which is third. So it's kind of like the third level of formation for a Jesuit. Mm. Happens after ordination. I did my tertianship in Northern Ireland in the years 1993 and 1994. And when I came out of my 30-day retreat, which is only the second time as a Jesuit that you formally do the exercises, you do it as a Jesuit novice, and then you do it during tertianship to kind of reset your spiritual focus and to open yourself up to the working of the Spirit and to be malleable for mission, for missioning. Uh, I discovered as a result of doing that, uh, the incredible power that God uh, had given me and what he wanted to do in my life. I was working at that time at a very high-powered Jesuit uh, university on the East Coast, and I was concerned about going into the culture and kind of losing my spiritual focus, which is what almost everybody that I encounter is concerned about. They may have a powerful retreat experience, they may have an encounter of some kind, and then they get back into the push and pull uh, of the daily life and everything spiritual evaporates. Mm. So I had that anxiety and I thought, what am I going to do to hold on to the spiritual insights I gained at this year away in my 30-day retreat in Northern Ireland? Mm. Uh, and then the very next day in the mail, uh, a pamphlet came uh, from a studies uh, uh, edition that the society in the United States put out and it was on the examination of conscience. And so God does answer our prayers. Right. And I thought this was a this was a physical manifestation of my desire to stay connected. And it was kind of like God and St. Ignatius saying, well, I did provide this discipline that you were supposed to be doing twice a day. So I reincorporated the practice of that in my life. And I knew that one day I would want to develop a whole institute around it because it became so powerful and so transformative for me from that time forward, from 1994 until the present. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, so you, you intuited my second question, which was going to be, where does this come from in your sacred story? Um, right. But I, to, to circle back, I love the Ignatian examine. I, people hearing this, might it might trigger the thought of what we sometimes call the examination of conscience, 
which is a practice that people do sometimes in preparation to go to confession. Um, but that examination of conscience is often sort of list-based or, or almost like a checkbox sort of thing you go through. And, and it can become very me-focused. Um, and I love the, the Ignatian examine because it's really a form of meditative prayer that's God-directed. And then you're also focusing on that the blessings and gratitudes. Um, so there's right. a lot of wisdom in that examine structure that sort of inoculates us against, I think, some of the common pitfalls and traps that people can fall into when doing an examination of conscience. Right. And the reason it begins, you know, the, the, the structure, and this is in my book, Sacred Story and Ignatian Examine for the Third Millennium. This gets into our, our, our larger topic in terms of spirituality, psychology, and neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wanted to do, uh, for my doctoral work at Catholic University, an exploration and an examination of the examination of conscience because it was getting a lot of criticism by modern uh, Jesuit uh, spirituality people, whether they were lay people, sisters, or, or Jesuits, that it was an outmoded form of prayer, that it was me-focused, that it, it didn't uh, engage social concern, uh, that it fostered kind of a scrupulous, uh, neurotic uh, uh, focus on your faults, and that it was no longer effective. So. I won't go into all the research I did and the studies that I did with both Protestants and Catholics, by the way. Mm. I've got a version of my 40 weeks uh, that will be published around Christmas for a Protestant audience. Um, So I'm very excited about that. Uh, So I did both Protestants and Catholics. Discovered that the discipline was effective when done right, and I wanted to put it out back with its Ignatian dynamism without watering down the spiritual elements of it, but putting fresh language around it to make it more accessible and have more traction for people in the third millennium. Uh, So I did an exploration of Ignatius's conversion in his autobiography, which is a book you read in the novitiate. Uh, Ignatius was not Augustine. It's not great literature. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very short. It's very dry. and this was another mystical gift, uh, because when you do a doctoral dissertation, you have to come up with your topic, uh, and you have to give an explanation of what you're going to do and kind of the ordering of how your dissertation is going to go. Mm-hmm. So my first chapter uh, that my doctoral committee approved after three months of uh, questioning every semicolon and period and verb that I had in my page and a half, two-page description for my what my dissertation was going to be about. They finally approved it. My first chapter was going to be an exploration of the historical sources on how Ignatius developed his own unique version of the examination of conscience, because his was different uh, than anything that had come before. So I start getting into my research, and I couldn't find anything. Uh, I found a reference from like a 1908 Catholic encyclopedia that said, basically, Ignatius's version of the examination of conscience was unique to himself. Mm-hmm. And in uh, the Jesuit Dagobert's History of the Society of Jesus, basically the same statement, but no explanation. I thought, uh-oh. I can't, I can't go back to my doctoral committee and say, I can't do chapter one, <laughs> <laughs> my, my dissertation. So 
felt I was inspired. I picked up the autobiography, which I hadn't really looked at since I was a novice. And I started going through it. And I started seeing all these things that I never even had seen before. And I thought, this can't be true. Is this? And it just was like insight after insight after insight after insight. And I was doing all this reading in neuroscience and psychology at the same time. So it's again, it's again God inspires your conscience when you're seeking and gives you answers and answers your prayers and gives you insights. And this is, you know, I tell people uh, to have hope, to have hope that anytime I've ever asked for anything from God at all, he has always responded to my prayer, not in the specific way that I may have been asking, but in ways that are always better and get at the core of what I'm really looking at. So I discovered all of these things in the autobiography about Ignatius' conversion that are in the first hundred pages of Sacred Story. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered is that the pattern of his Christian awakening at the age of 30 actually models the five movements of the examine and the structure of the four weeks of the spiritual exercises. So it's it's my conviction that every saint in the history of the church, if they had a unique spirituality like Benedict or Dominic or um, um, St. Francis of Assisi, that their pattern of their conversion basically is the imprint of the spiritual tradition which they gave to the world. Yeah, I love that. I I love the way, too, that God was answering your prayers, but as you were about his work, it reminds me of a, a quote that's been meaningful to me from Frederick Douglass, who said, I prayed for years, um, but God didn't answer my prayers till I prayed with my legs, <laughs> you know, talking about getting right. free from the slavery that he was going through. And so there's this dynamic wow. of God coming into our lives, but, but we're cooperating, we're moving with what he's doing. Uh, you had mentioned some about Ignatius's life there. And I think uh, just for the sake of the audience, maybe to mention a little bit more about Ignatius of Loyola. He's the founder of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. He was uh, born at the end of the 15th century and lived into the 16th century and spent really the first part of his life, um, let's say, not focused on God, pursuing uh, both worldly things and also sinful things, and then went through a conversion experience. Um, I believe he was a military man in his younger life, too. Um, would you maybe just mention a little bit about from uh, where in Ignatius's story these spiritual exercises came from? Well, Ignatius was um, uh, grew up in the Basque region of Spain, uh, and his the the family, the Loyola family, would call I would call mid tier nobles. Mm. So they they had their castle was you know kind of like a mega mansion according to the, today's standards. Uh, so they weren't the super wealthy nobles, but they were kind of like a mid-level, middle-class noble family. Uh, and Ignatius was not the oldest son, so he wouldn't inherit anything. It would, it would go to the oldest uh, in his family. Uh, his family was reflexively Catholic, but I would say not necessarily bearers of the moral tradition of the Catholic Church. His mother died in childbirth. Uh, his father died uh, when he just turned 16. His father was an adulterer. He had another older brother who was a priest, a diocesan priest, who had several illegitimate children. Um, Ignatius was quite uh, dissolute in his life. Uh, he decided that he wasn't going to stay uh, 
in the family that he was not going to become a um, a cleric, which is what his uh, older brother wanted him to be, to find his, you know, to basically make some name for himself. And he decided to use family connections, and he ended up at the court in Madrid. And at the age of 30, as a soldier uh, for uh, Spain, uh, found himself on the walls of the medieval town of Pamplona mm. with 400 Spanish Basque soldiers facing a uh, basic, uh, basically a huge crowd of about 10,000 French who were superiorly armed. And if people haven't been to Pamplona, you can. this is where the running of the bulls are. You can still see the medieval walls, mm. which are quite high. So the, these 400 soldiers would have been at the top and the, the, uh, the, the French would have been attacking the wall and trying to get up into the city. Uh, but Ignatius uh, persuaded the knights, it says, and this is the opening lines of his autobiography. So he's basically pegging himself as a hopeless narcissist and a, and a person of profound vainglory, uh, searching for his own fame uh, by using violence and the sword. Hmm. So he said he was able to persuade the commander and every single knight to engage this, what basically was a foolish battle. Uh, so he had apparently, even though he was his statue was probably about five seven, five six, had a very very commanding personality, who was able to persuade all these people to do something that was impossible. A cannonball hits his leg; his leg is shattered. He's the first person injured. Everybody on the on the French on the Spanish side loses uh, their courage. They surrender the age of chivalry, Ignatius is taken back to his family home uh, on a litter by the French. Uh, so it was kind of an age of, uh, uh, of chivalry. So the, you surrendered and he was taken back by his uh, uh, forces that had captured them. His leg was not set properly. So uh, it had to be reset, uh, which was very, very painful. And then as he was healing, uh, the bone had not kind of been set right, and it was protruding from his leg. And this is a guy who was planning on going back to the court in Madrid. Uh, the oftentimes there's kind of a Jesuit saying that you know the uh, the the Jesuits gained a saint at Pamplona, but he certainly wasn't converted at the time of his injury. It was during his recuperation that his conversion came. Uh, because he fully intended to go back to the court, and he was uh, shocked that his legs would not look good in his stockings. So he ordered that the bone protruding from his leg be cut off, mm. which I would describe as a dangerous cosmetic surgery, which much alarmed his older brother. Uh, and, of course, there's no anesthetic, you know, so you just kind of, you know, grit your way through it. So he nearly dies from that surgery. Uh, and then he reflexively prays to St. Peter, to which he had a devotion, and he miraculously starts to get well that very night. Wow. Uh, so that puts him on the road of recovery and the road of fantasy uh, and imagination for mm -hmm. two to three months. Mm -hmm. And he asked his sister-in-law, Magdalena, to bring him books of chivalrous romance, which were very common for his class. Mm -hmm. I like to describe them as a cross between a Harlequin romance and a Tom Clancy thriller. Uh, basically, the the exploits of knights winning the hands of ladies in waiting. So it's kind of all this kind of uh, soldierly stuff and romance. 
Nothing was available in the Loyola family home except a book called The Golden Legend, which was all the miracle stories of the saints, the Wolf of Gubbio and St. Francis, the miracles that Dominic and Benedict had done, hmm. and a copy of The Imitation of Christ. Hmm. So he's recouping, and anybody in our audience who has ever been sick and realizes that there may be 500 channels on cable, but there's really nothing to watch, uh, and you've gone through all the magazines and you're bored and you don't feel well, so you start to have room to pay attention to what your fantasy life is about. So he had two sets of fantasies that he realized that he describes in the autobiography. One was what he called his vain fantasies, where he was imagining going back to the court in Madrid. He was going to basically thought he was going to be able to persuade King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, who were the king and queen of Spain at the time, to give him their daughter in marriage. So his ego was still very much intact, and uh, he had a very uh, grand idea of his own self-worth. So he fantasizes for hours on end about how he's going to do this. And then he has the other fantasies that are coming from the golden legend and the imitation of Christ. And so his ego uh, fantasies switch from the vain to uh, the spiritual. He says, well, Maybe I'll go to Jerusalem and I'll eat nuts and berries like the saints did and do all of these fasts. And uh, so he he starts to get enamored with the spiritual stories that he's reading. And, and mind you, he's 30 years old. He and a friend of his had almost killed a priest uh, during a drunken binge one night, uh, a, a, a priest of a family that the Loyalists had a bloodlust against. Uh, we can't confirm if he had an illegitimate child, uh, his life in the court certainly would have made that possible. So he's, a, he's, a, he's hot-headed, he's vainglorious, he's dissolute. He was also addicted to gambling. That's mm -hmm. also in the very first two paragraphs of the autobiography that he dictates uh, to the, the Jesuit brother who wrote it down. So not much material here for a saint. Yeah. Uh, so he's thinking about these holy things, uh, and then one day God illumined the set, the two sets of fantasies that he had. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to tell everybody who's listening, you have a fantasy life, you have daydreams, and they only have two directions. There may be a million subplots, but they're either inspired by the light and the Holy Spirit or by the enemy of human nature, and they're either going to move you towards God or away from God. So he realized that he was paying attention to these two things, and he he understood that they both entertained him during the act of fantasy. But one day he noticed this difference. He said when he put aside the vain fantasies, he felt empty and dissatisfied. But that day when he set aside the hours of fantasizing about how he would mimic the saints, when he put those active fantasies aside, the after effect was peace and contentment. Mm. And he knew from that feeling, again, a graced insight, that that was his authentic self. And then he started in full speed ahead, moving in the direction that those holy fantasies had dictated to him by their peacefulness and contentment. And this is the genesis of Ignatian discernment mm. uh, and, the, and the discernment of spirits and all of the rules in the spiritual exercises. 
They all follow his insights that God has given him as he's moving and progressing forward. So his awakening at this moment, so he's at a moment of peace. This is the beginning of the exercises, gratitude and thanksgiving for creation given, and also the first movement of the examination of conscience. He's in a moment of peace, uh, contentment, thinking about holy things. And as soon as this insight about what is authentic in terms of the direction that he's supposed to be going in, and that he decides with the full commitment of his will that he's going to move in, he is suddenly opened up to the sin of his past life. Mm. And he says in the autobiography, he realized that he had needed much penance for his past sins. So it's actually the thankfulness and the gratefulness and the acceptance of mission that reveals to you what is amiss in your life. Mm. It's very, very gospel. It's like Jesus Peter's on the boat. They get the great draft of fish. Peter realizes the miracle, the gift given, and he turns to Jesus and he said, leave me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. So the Ignatian Ignatian spirituality is so transportable because it's really anchored to the way that the gospel conversion stories go, and it makes them very accessible to people. So he has this sense that he needs to do penance for his past life starts to do that, uh, uh, to make amends, and then he has this great desire to go on pilgrimage uh, to Jerusalem. So that whole movement, which was then repeated the next day with a a mystical vision of of the Blessed Mother and the Christ Child, graced him, opened him up to where he needed conversion, and then propelled him to this idea of going to Jerusalem. That is the whole movement of the spiritual exercises, and it's the very structure of the examination of conscience. And it comes very much out of his initial awakening. And then we won't get into all the rules for the discernment of spirits, but they come out of those first two years of his very formative experience of God working with him Mm. and enlightening to him to what was holy, true, and good about himself and about how Christ wanted to work in the world and in each one of us. So these these spiritual exercises, it's, it's a book he wrote. Um, and f- from this, it's really, I think Ignatius is in a way packaging, uh, his experience of conversion and inviting other people into that encounter with Christ that he had. Um, so a lot of the, yeah, but, what it, the exercises are he cre- is, he, he created, he started writing these different things down. So they were like a collection of meditations mm. that gradually got put into the form of the spiritual exercises. So, so he didn't sit down in one sitting, but he gradually pieced these different things together, and he would give individual exercises uh, that became a part of the entire book in the future to different people he was trying to get to join with him. Yeah, and so in its original form, these exercises were done in a 30-day silent retreat, um, which right. many people still do, um, but there's also this idea of Ignatian spirituality, which I think is essentially taking the elements of the exercises and applying them to day-to-day life, right? How can these insights come into our day-to-day life? Um, In in a sense, I like to think of Ignatius in a way as a prophet, um, because I think a lot of his insights, a lot of what he developed, um, can be applied in in our modern world in a really interesting way. His his insights are sort of timeless. They're not just context-bound to his story, um, but they transcend his story 
and can be applied in, in our life. And I know a lot of what the Sacred Story Institute does is um, is, is sort of discovering the ways of, of Ignatius's insights, um, really confronting modern day issues too. Uh, could you talk a right. little bit about um, about the the research base and the the evidence based approach that you have with the Sacred Story Institute applying these exercises? Yeah, what what I wanted to do. There's very few people that will take the time anymore for a weekend retreat, mm. let alone an yeah. eight day retreat, let alone a thirty day retreat. And I just saw that progression of the busyness uh, and the crowded crowdedness of life, especially when when our smartphones, our dumb phones came in. Uh, and But I wanted to create the opportunity for people to have the power of that spiritual experience in a day-to-day, in a format that they could do in a self-guided process, which is why I created the 40-week program. So after I did my doctoral work, um, founded the Institute, then published the, the doctoral dissertation in a popular format that was accessible so that it would be kind of uh, of help to people to understand how Ignatian spirituality is is pieced together mm. and how it comes out of a very organic process of conversion so that people could have kind of the feel of that. Uh, I, I wanted to create my first adult program uh, that would teach the method of the examination of conscience, but I knew that it would take time because people have to develop uh, a habit of doing it. And uh, it's like 15 minutes, but you would be surprised how difficult it is for people to do a 15-minute strategic prayer that's getting them deep into their heart. Mm. And I like to joke with people that I could watch, you know, um, six episodes of of Guy Fieri's Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives with no problem at all, but ask me to do a 15-minute examination of conscience to like climbing Mount Everest. Um, so I wanted to create this process. So what I did, and I've always I've always evaluated every program that I've ever developed. That goes back to when I was in Jesuit Scholastic in Portland, Oregon at our high school there. Uh, so I wanted to create a program. I consider Sacred Story Institute half research and half creation of pastoral tools. So I asked then Archbishop Sarton, who was newly installed in Seattle, if he would give me permission to work with pastors in his diocese. He was very excited. And he actually, he wrote the letter inviting uh, the pastors that he thought would be interested. So uh, we had about 400 people who agreed. I preached at all these parishes six weeks in a row, probably to 25,000 people. I raised the bar very high. I'm looking for people who are ready at this point in their life to commit. I'm not doing something broad-based that's uh, broad and shallow, but that is is targeted towards the small percentage of people in any faith community who said, yes, I'm going to commit uh, my life. I'm going to really take my faith seriously. So I want to really get those people, maybe 1% to 2% of people in the the congregation. Mm -hmm. So I raised the bar high on my preaching to invite people into this project to create this new spiritual resource. And I told them that they're going to have to pray twice a day for 15 minutes. They're going to have to keep a simple journal uh, experience, just uh, consolation and desolation. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask them to make a confession of their entire life, and they're going to have to do all these things for a year. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't trying to scare people away. I was trying to attract the people that the Spirit was saying, 
uh, yes, do this, do this. You're ready for this. I've been looking for something to help me. So I had 400 people. Uh, I sent out, I, I basically was writing the lesson plans. <laughs> uh, I was creating the 40-week process as we were engaged in this year-long program. And within the first month, I realized this is not going to take a year. It's going to take me probably about 40 weeks. I thought, hey, 40 weeks, that's a very biblical number. But I didn't let anybody know. I let them think that it was going to be a whole year. But what I would do, I have, I use a research uh, tool called Qualtrics, uh, which is kind of the major research software that most universities use. Every week I would email the lesson for the next week and then I would have a survey about their experience from the previous week. Uh, how much, how many of the exercises were they doing? What were their experiences? What were the troubles that they were facing? Because uh, I wanted to find, uh, get as much data as possible to make the tool that we were developing as accessible to the widest percentage of people. And we had people in, in working class parishes. We had, you know, uh, we have a parish up in the Boeing neighborhood with engineers and electricians and executives, you know, from all over the world. We had a very, very good cross section of people. Hmm. And then I also had an editor in each parish. Uh, so I, I emailed them the lesson in a Word document. And they had as much as six people feeding in. I don't understand what the word discernment means. I don't understand this. I don't understand that. So every week I would get from the, the local parish editors uh, a Word document with all these track changes with the different comments from the different people. So I had the research from the, uh, the Qualtrics system, thousands and thousands of pages of data, plus the document from the, pari the, the parishes. And I was able to weave all of that together to sift it out and then to create a final product, which became the 40 Weeks in Ignatian Path to Christ with Sacred Story Prayer. And I do that research uh, methodology for every single program that we develop. Mm -hmm. The last major program that we developed was our young adult program called True Heart. And it took me four years of research, two major beta tests, both in Latin America and North America, to create the final structure of that for something that I thought would have traction for people in the Americas um, uh, and uh, both genders and people from all different walks of life. And I think this is this is so important for the church. A common temptation or, or a way that that enemy of our nature comes at us sometimes is to, to disqualify us from entering the story. So I know people... I know I've heard this temptation, like, oh, I'll, I'll be that person the Lord wants me to be when X, Y, or Z, when I retire, when I have time to go away and do a 30-day retreat. Or if I just had the time and the money or, or whatever, then I could finally do the Lord's will. But this is so important because uh, the, the Lord can enter our story wherever we are. And these Ignatian tools uh, really, really give us the means to do that. Um, so in, in that research you did, um, following these people who you took this 30-day silent retreat program, so to speak, and then applied it in a way that they could bring it into their day-to-day -day lives. So you're taking away the barriers of entry other than being willing to commit and make the sacrifice to do the work. Um, what did you find in that research comparing their experience of the at-home retreat compared to the retreat center retreat? Well, the, the, my core research was during my doctoral work at Catholic University, 
uh, and again, I was testing the method of the Ignatian examination of conscience. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of evidence from people all over the world. In fact, uh, uh, we've got a version of 40 Weeks in Italian. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got it in Spanish. We just have two new uh, testimonials on our site from uh, lay leaders in Chiapas, Mexico, who are using this uh, very effectively. the Jesuits in Taiwan uh, will be finished around Christmas time of translating 40 weeks into Mandarin. And I just got an email this morning about Jesuits uh, in Indonesia who want to put it into Indonesian uh, because people here in the United States uh, who were from Indonesia had done it and found it so powerful that they wanted it available in their language. Mm-hmm. So I have that evidence from people from all over the world that this is a very, very powerful tool uh, and it's effective if people apply. It's like it's like if you do these sets of exercises, you will build your core, you will do this, and you will do that, but you have to do them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we know that if you do them, they will be effective. Um, so, But one of the important things that I discovered, and this is, this is very, very important in my doctoral work, and again, I had, I had six different branches of Protestantism and Catholics doing this. So I have an experience of Christians across the board. And it was a 10-week methodology, a testing methodology. One of the most important things that I discovered is that the people who actually made the confession, the whole life confession, I had everybody had to write it out, but I arbitrarily chose some people to 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 give it in a real confession experience or for Protestants in some accountability um, setting that was appropriate to their tradition. Mm -hmm. The people who did that, the people who prayed twice daily and the people who did keep their journal were the ones who grew the most. Hmm. So the application of the disciplines uh, was evidence-based in terms of the impact. And I was I was looking at five different indices of, of spiritual growth, and I don't want to get into those over the, because uh, it'll take too much time yeah. to explain them. Yeah, well, um, but that's important the important in the research. I was going to yeah, say, it it's important in the research because there was, a, there was a, a dose and effect response, so to speak. So what exactly, you found is the exactly. more the people did it, the more effect it had, which, which also That's gives right. evidence that it's not just a correlation, but there's causation involved in it, too. That's right. That's right. And this is one of the other very, very interesting pieces of data that I had in terms of the actual metrics for growth, mm-hmm. that the people who grew the least over the 10-week period on all the five different indices I was looking at, had a very, very high sense of themselves. Hmm. They felt very spiritual, and they felt very self-satisfied. The people who had grown the most, those who probably had gotten more deeply in touch with who they really were and where they needed to be saved, I would say, to use a language that would be accessible to Catholics and Protestants, Hmm. they had a much more modulated sense of who they were. They were more humble. And that led me to believe that people can be doing spiritual things and feel holy, but not be growing. Mm. And that's the great deception that Jesus, you know, even gets at in the scriptures with many stories with the scribes and the Pharisees. And and bringing up a lot, there's a lot of people creating spiritual things, even in the Catholic church that are very popular but are they actually helping people grow spiritually? Yeah, you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by right. their fruits, definitely. Um, so 
We're getting short on time, but I wanted to circle around to one of your other programs, the Sacred Story Youth Program. You have a great video out called The Neuroscience of Faith. And what you talk yeah. in there a little bit about is the, the deleterious effects of uh, an overuse or abuse of technology, especially on young minds, and then how right. bringing the Ignatian exercises into children's lives can counteract uh, those deleterious yeah. effects. Yeah, and I would say that for your uh, for your listing of sources, uh, it's too big to go into it now, but there's a book that uh, at least the leadership should read uh, by a um, an emerita from the business school at Harvard, Shoshana Zuboff, Z-U-B-O-F-F, called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And she has all the data on the Facebook corporations, Google, and what these companies knew ahead of time in terms of how their products were going to be undermining mm. people's sense of self-esteem, uh, how they did it intentionally for profit. She calls them instrumenta instrumentarians. Uh, and she says that, uh, this is on page 470, she said, industrial capitalism depended upon the exploitation and control of nature with catastrophic consequences that we are only now recognize. Mm -hmm. And she calls surveillance capitalism, these people like Zuckerberg and uh, Google people, mm -hmm. surveillance capitalism, I suggested, depends upon the exploitation and control of human nature. The market reduces us to our behavior, transformed into another fictional commodity and packaged for others' consumption. So basically, she said they're harvesting our human nature for their own profit, and they didn't tell us what they were doing. And Facebook knew that their product was creating anxiety in children, mm. and yet they continued to do it and not tell people what was going on. So these are really evil people that will come out one day. But the good news is this, and this is what we discovered. You know, I worked with a uh, pediatric neuro uh, uh, neurologist uh, uh, here at the Swedish Neuroscience Center in Seattle, Dr. Marcio Manesis. And what he pointed out, he, he gave me a lesson basically in neuroscience uh, to show how the interaction of children and all of us, but children and young adults specifically because their brains are more formative and, and, and forming uh, and in formation, that the interaction with technology basically is it rewires their brains in very, very negative ways. And it makes them difficult to access what is most, what, what is most human in human nature. And it creates anxiety and depression. But we also have evidence from neuroscience that meditation and prayer uh, basically can reverse the negative effects of what is happening uh, with technology interaction and consuming it at such vast quantities on a daily basis, up to eight to 10 hours a day now for people wow. between their computer screens and their phones, uh, which is really undermining us. And it's making us uh, incapable of focusing and hearing what's happening spiritually inside of us. But but meditation can undo that, and we have neurological evidence that it can thicken the, cort the cortical part of the brain. So it, it can basically undo what technology is doing. So it's kind of like God had a plan, kind of probably maybe foresaw, but always gives, God always gives 
a way out based on how he has made us. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the very good news. And so my goal was not to get people off of technology, but my goal was to get them to pray once or twice daily with a very specific spiritual methodology that could give them access to what is most human in them, where God is residing inside of them so they can make choices that are grounded in the Holy Spirit and moving their life, the direction of their life, the direction of their story towards the sacred and away from the profane. And doing that, they will find joy, peace, light, happiness, serenity, and love. Amen. I want more of all of those things. Uh, I do too. Yeah, this I, this uh, connects with me because sin destroys human nature. It, it damages human nature, and God comes to heal and perfect our, our nature, building on it uh, with his grace. So what, what we're finding, I think, more and more is that the information that these companies are utilizing uh, they're they're really damaging our nature further in order to make money or or reach their own ends. So I really think it's incumbent on us as people in the church to to use that information. Right, as Catholics, we believe in this the symphony of truth of faith and reason. Right, so we can use that same information about human nature to build the kingdom, to heal human nature, and to give people what they're truly longing for. And and the more we make that connection explicit. And the more we uh, make it simple for people to realize that the practices of the faith uh, actually make great sense in light of what we can discover through reason and not just some, uh, some faith, a leap of faith or something like that, um, that, that I think people can take up these practices and more and more the faith can be relevant um, to fit the context of what, what right. people need. Yeah, if we could, there's the uh, a lot of young people have walked away from the church because they don't think it's relevant or or has anything to do with who they are as people today. Uh, but we can give evidence for the fact that it does, uh, and that the very things they're looking for in the culture today, which they're not finding, uh, uh, young people are very stressed out, uh, very unhappy, very dissatisfied, mm-hmm. even with all the freedoms that they have. Uh, but there is something with regards to our spiritual disciplines, uh, the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit inside of us, and how he's calling to us uh, to surrender. Uh, and that's the reason why I call my young adult program True Heart, because uh, people want to be authentic. They want to be authentically themselves. They think somehow that the church and the Catholic Church prevent them from being authentic. And a lot of it has to do with people wanting to rewrite their own narrative, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, gender ideology or whatever, that I can, I can basically declare who I am, but you can't because God has made us in a certain way, uh, but you can find what is most authentic about yourself mm-hmm. if you surrender to that interior light that God has placed there. And it's not like somebody from the outside telling you, you're going to do this. It's saying, please take the time to listen deeply, which is the basically the definition of the Latin word obey, hmm. obediere, to listen deeply. You take the time to listen deeply to your own conscience, and you will be convinced what is most authentic. And you don't need somebody outside as a policeman, either in social police or Catholic police, telling you what to do and forcing you to do it. You have it inside of yourself. God is living within us, and what the culture is doing and what the technology is doing, it's preventing us 
and distracting us from the interior power of the Spirit that God has given us for our life, our hope, our peace, and our eternal redemption. Amen. Well, let's end on that note. Thank you so much, Father Bill, for coming on Physically Spiritual today. I just You're want most to... welcome, Andrew. Delight to meet you and your audience. Hello, audience. Yeah, hello, everyone. Uh, what a blessing. Well, I want to just highlight the programs we mentioned, because Sacred Story has something for everyone. There's the Sacred Story Youth Program. There's the Young Adult Program, True Heart. Uh, the 40 Weeks Program, the kind of at-home Ignatian-style retreat. There's also a... Uh, a Sacred Story Parish program where this can be done as a community. Um, so you could bring this to your pastor and propose it as something for your community to do. Uh, and then there's also the the Whole Life Confession. Uh, there's just a lot here to plug into. <laughs> so I'd encourage... And there's also uh, there's a Sacred Story Rosary methodology, too, mm. that I just finished recording that'll be on an Audible and uh, um, uh, Apple Books soon. Excellent. So, so evidence-based practices from the heart of the church in Ignatian spirituality. Go to sacredstory.net on social media at Sacred Story Institute or check out their podcast on SoundCloud called Sacred Story. Uh, Before we get going, I just want to point you to becominggift.com. If you're interested in going deeper in the topics we've discussed, applying anything from the show, you can find my blog and coaching practice at becominggift.com. And with that, everyone, uh, Enter in deeply with God to your own sacred story. This show and all media on Awakened Catholic is made possible by the Awakened Nation and the Hollow app. The Awakened Nation is a community of people like you who support all things Awaken for as cheap as a cup of coffee a week and get access to exclusive content. Learn more by visiting awakencatholic.org donate. Hollow is the only audio-guided Catholic prayer app focused on contemplative prayer and traditional Catholic meditation such as Lexio Divina, Daily Examine, and the Rosary. We here at Awaken all use Hollow every day and love it. To learn more or give it a try, visit hollow.app/awaken.